Okay, today's daf is daf Lamates. We pick up on Lamachet Amud Bet um, with line Tanara Baden Shorsha Yisrael. Line starts with the word Ha'omonid, about 20 lines from the bottom. And our learning should be um, in the merit of the uh, protection of our Chayalim and Chayalot and the speedy return of all the hostages. Okay, so we are continuing with the theme of the Mishnah that uh, if an ox of a Jew grows an ox of a non Jew, um, it is putter, but a non Jew that grows the ox of a Jew pays full damages. And obviously, that's you know something that's uh, very uh, challenging to explain as the Gemara dealt with. And now we're going to deal with the issue as it relates to Samaritans. Let's take a look. Tanor Banan, Shorsha Yisrael Shenaga Shorsha Kusi Patab Shakusi Shenaga Shorsha Yisrael Tamishalim Chati Nezek Mud Mishalim Nezek Shalim. So if an ox of a Jew grows an ox of a Samaritan, it's exempt. Um, and that, um, but if a Samaritan that grows our ox has the normal payment of half for um, for uh, a tam and full for a muad. Now, that does not seem to make sense. The fact, it's not the law of a non-Jew. If it was the law of a non-Jew, it would pay full if it gored us, but it's paying the normal things if it gores us, half or full based on tam or muad. So presumably it has the status of a Jew. So why are we exempt when um, when our ox gores theirs? So the Gemara never really looks at the position of, Reb, of the Chachamim. It'll look at the position of Rebbe Meir, which we're about to cite. But Rajin and Tosos both say that, uh, you know, presumably this is a knas, this is something that is done in order, as the Gemara will say by Rebbe Meir in a second, in order to create separation between us and the Samaritans. We should not have any, you know, um, uh, uh, um, um, uh, uh, you know, involvement with them um, and leading to intermarrying with them and so on. Even if they're halachically Jews, we want to keep our distance from them. They don't really keep, you know, they keep a whole different, like they have a whole different type of way of practicing the religion. So we want to keep our distance from them. Um, so therefore, when our ox scores theirs, we don't pay. But when their ox scores ours, we're not going to make them pay more than they're obligated, actively take money from them. But we will have, so therefore, that's a half and full based on Tom and Muad. But when our ox scores there, then there will be some, you know, impunity and we won't have to pay. And that certainly will give them second class status and create walls and barriers between us and them. That's the Chachamim. That if Arak scores theirs exempt, like the Chachamim, and theirs that gores ours, pays full, just like the law of non Jews. So the Gemara thinks that this indicates that for Rabbi Meir, these Samaritans are non Jews. This indicates that Rabbi Meir holds that Samaritans are converts due to the lions. What does this mean? If you look at Tanakh and Malachim Beis after the destruction of the second base, of the first base of Mekdash, excuse me, Nebuchadnezzar comes and he takes different nations and he puts them in the land of Israel, among them people from Kuta, so that's the Samaritans, and it says that they continued worshiping their gods, but then God, in the land, but God, you know, sent lions upon them, and they realized that they had to worship the true God, okay? And so therefore the question is, did they actually convert or not? Um, and or or the assumption is they did convert, but was it a good conversion? Are they Gere Arias, converts of lions, or Gere Emis, true converts? Now, one way of understanding this is the question about what motivated them. Were they sincerely motivated or not? Are they only motivated by lions? And is that, a, does that invalidate the conversion? But as Tosos points out, the, the accepted halacha is that regardless of motivation, you know, the conversion is good if the person at the end of the day is sincere about their desire to convert, whatever their motivation is. So everybody could agree that their motivation was they didn't want the lions to attack them. The question is, 
at the end of the day, was their conversion sincere, that would be Gere MS, or was their conversion not sincere, and that would be Gere Arayos. So it seems that Rebbe Meir holds that their conversion was not sincere and that they are treated like non-Jews, they are non-Jews, and therefore that's why these halachas of full payment applies to them. So the Gemara says, but so the Meimer to suffer Rebbe Meir, Kuzim Gere Arayos, but I will challenge this. Any stains that are found on garments that come from Rekem are Tahor. What does this mean? A woman who menstruates is a Nida. If, if he has blood on her garments, um, then rabbinically, since it, she didn't say it coming directly from her body, it's only rabbinically Tamei. It's called a Ketem. She's Tamei under certain circumstances. And the garment and people who touch the garment are Tamei. Okay? So what if you find a garment, a, you know, cloth, something on the street with a blood stain? So what's the story? So if it's in Rekem, they're Tahor. Why? Because the people living in Rekem are non-Jews. Rabbi Yehuda Metami. Rabbi Yehuda says no. It's Tommy and Rekem. They think they're non-Jews, but they're actually converts from a long time ago, and they just have forgotten about that. So it is a bloodstain from a Jew. Bloodstains of non-Jews are not metame. Okay. If you find it in places that it's you know clear that they're non-Jews, then obviously it's tahor. Um, if you find it, you know, from among Jews or Samaritans, Rabbi Meir Matame, Rabbi Meir says it's tame because the blood of you know, menstrual blood, you know, whatever, or the stains from a woman, you know, from a woman's garments um, are tame. And uh, kutim um, are clearly, according to this, are halachically Jews, right? And therefore their stains are tame as well. The the Chachamim say it's Tahor. Why do they say it's Tahor? Not because it's Tahor. If you knew that it was, you know, on their garments, you know, then yes, it would be Tameh. And if you found it in their house, then it would be Tameh. But if you're finding something on the street, then you have no idea what the source of it was. Maybe the blood was from a chicken or, you know, that was slaughtered or something, or from a bloody finger. And we will assume that they are very careful and, you know, about not letting their stained garments just be thrown out you know, in public and in the street. Okay, so that's their debate, whether we are concerned about, you know, what the source of these stained garments are. But at the end of the day, it's clear that Rebbe Meir and the Chachamim agree that Kutim are considered to be Jews. So the Gemara says, You see that Rebbe Meir holds that Kusim are considered to be true Jews, and therefore their stains are Tame. So why is it that we don't pay them and they pay us full? So Amar Rebbe Yavo, Knasu Shikonus Rebbe Meir Bermamonam. Rebbe Meir is, you know, applying a fine to their money, meaning, you know, he's 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 like freeing us from paying them and demanding that they pay us full, and that way he's even more than the Chachamim. Shelo yitam ubahem, that we should not, you know, intermingle with them and intermarry with them, okay? Because, again, even though they are halachically Jewish, they had whole different sets of practices, and even to some degree something idolatrous, you know, came up, so we want to keep our distance from them, okay? So the basic difference between him and the Chachamim is just that the Chachamim say, don't pay, but we won't make them pay us more than the law demands, and Rabbi Meir will even make them pay us more than the law demands. Masiv Rabzeir, Rabzeir asks, the following are the young you know, not, women who, who you would pay a fine. This is, you know, the Torah speaks about case of uh, rape and seduction. 
um, and paying 50 kesef and um, the man paying it. And the, the mission it says here that these are, you know, that these are the women that you pay to, meaning even the following women, um, Habala Mamzeres, man who has uh, sex with a woman who's a Mamzeret, even though halachically not allowed to marry, the Knas still applies. Valenesina, who is, uh, let's say, it's a question exactly, but let's say it's a somebody from the Canaanite nations, you know, who was sort of put into slavery by King David, but whatever, even if she converts, and even if, it's at, so marriage is binding, but you're not allowed to marry her, you know, so in that case, um, even though you're not allowed to marry, halachically, we're assuming it's a convert, she converted, so therefore, She's Jewish, so you would pay the Allah Kutit and on the Kutit again because they're Jewish. Okay. And Stam Mishnah is Rebbe Meir. Now, Rebbe Mayer says that we're not going to make you pay them and we'll make them pay you full and so on. So then, why not make a fine and say, you know, fine them by not paying the fine? Why not say the same way, you know, you don't have to pay when your ox scores. This man doesn't have to pay when he has sex with his kutit um, because, um, you know, because really here, <laughs> really, you know, would be a way of, of in order to maintain uh, separation. Um, so Amar Abaye says Abaye, um, what's the difference? No, no. Here we're not going to say that because this man there has to be consequences for his actions. So that he should be able to go ahead and rape and seduce, you know, this kutit, and therefore not have consequences for it. I mean, oh my God, that can lead, you know, that just is, you know. Will, will will even tremendously exacerbate the type of the that type of you know of of, of unconscionable act, actions. So um, so therefore, it's important that there be consequences, and that is more important than doing things to in this case make sure they're sort of being treated in this second class status type of way. So the Gemara says so that's for he is going to pay like like the normal halacha would demand before you have this principle of kedeshalo yitamu okay but why not make the man pay and there be consequences but don't give it to them give it to the poor so because it's money that has nobody to sue for it you know the man can't pay for his actions unless there's a plaintiff and somebody's suing for it you know in court so who is going to demand that money nobody's going you know to demand that money and therefore because no particular he doesn't own it to any particular money so we allow it to still be that that he pays to the woman that he uh, seduced or raped, like the halacha demands, and we do not treat it like the case of the ox, where we say no payments. Okay, so that's basically the end of that comp, you know, issue about that imbalance of law between us and the non-Jews or us and Samaritans. Now we get on to a new topic. Top of Lama Tera Aleph, the Mishnah. If the ox of a pikech, a normal person, gores the ox of a cherish, somebody who is a deaf mute who is considered to not have full intellect, or a shota, somebody who has a mental illness, does not process reality normally, like a schizophrenic, the katan or a minor, all these three people are people that are not held liable and responsible adults in court. So in that case, if one of, one of our oxes gores one of theirs, so we damage their property, but if one of their oxes gores the ox of somebody who's, you know, um, um, a normal citizen, I can't say normal, whatever, but, you know, just uh, uh, somebody who has his full mental capacities and so on, in that case, um, 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 they're exempt because they are not held liable for their actions or, in, or for their negligence. Okay, but that makes sense. But now we've got a problem, right? We've got this goring ox around and that's not safe, you know, for these communities. So what are we going to do? So the Mishnah continues. 
if their their ox gored, uh, the basin assigns for them an apotropis, which is like a um, you know somebody who's like a custodian for their um, you know responsible um, for, for a guardian of their estate, somebody who who takes the responsibility for their property, and the, and therefore he is going to be assigned the responsibility to watch this ox and make sure that it does not go out and gore. Now the normal apotropis for these so for for would be, let's say, for cases of, of orphans who are underage and they got an estate, and there he's being assigned the job in order to protect their interests. This is a slightly different type of an apotropis. It is somebody to ensure that protect society and making sure that somebody is there to guard the ox and stop it from going out and goring. Um, eating them and you testify against them in you know in the presence of for or you know you know against their ox you know in the presence of the apitropis so in order to make the apitropis a muad um, if he gores three times um, now. Um, if the Cherish became, you know, got his hearing back and the Shota became, you know, got his, you know, became you know, his sanity back, became, you know, his mental illness, um, 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 you know, was, was about, uh, uh, subsided and, um, and or if the Katan became an adult, um, so Rebbe Meir says that the ox now is considered to be a Tom. Why is that? Even if he was warned three times in the presence of the apitropis? Well, let's just see Rebbe Yossi, Omer. No, it remains a muad. So here it was warned in front of the apitropis three times, became a muad. And then um, the people that he was watching it for, the person, whether it was a cherish or a bakata, now became a responsible adult. And it goes back under, and it goes into the, their control. So, you know, so you understand the position of Rebbe Yossi that says it remains a muad because you'd have a habitual gorer. But why does Rebbe Yossi, but why why does Rabbi Meir say it goes back to being a Tom? So the this is called in the Gemara Rishus Mishana. Does the changing of possession change its status and make its status revert back to a Tom? And you know, one way simply to understand this issue, of course, is whether you're it's the Yude Torah or Yude Gavra. What's the purpose of warning three times? After warning three times, it shows that the ox is habitual. If it's to show Yude Torah, if it's to show the ox is habitual, we've proven the ox is habitual. And now that it goes back into the possession of the Cheshut of Kotan, who are no longer of Anyway, now that it goes back to changes possession, it remains habitual and the person will be liable for damages. That would make sense. That's the position of Rebbe, Rebbe Yossi. Rebbe Mayer, you know, could be holding that it's Yude Gavra. No, the reason you pay full is because you've been warned three times and you've been negligent three times and now you're going to start paying full. So that would apply to the person who is warned, not to a new person. You know, this could uh, apply in a lot of cases. You buy an ox that's a sure Muad, does it go back to being a Tom? You know, you could also ask if you gave something to a Shomer and then it got became a Muad and you took it back. Although that could be considered one constant Rishos because there is a Bendas, you give it to the Shomer, they represent you. Okay, so that's the debate of whether it goes back to being a Tom. Sure, it's Didine no Chayev Misa. A stadium ox is not Chayev Misa. Because meaning a stadium ox that was used in like these games, you know, and that they would have in the Roman, you know, in the in the in, in Rome in, in the Roman stadiums, um, and like like uh, bullfights and so on. Because here, if it's being egged on to gore and it's not goring on its own, even if it kills somebody, that does not it does not become a shoraniskal. That's only if it gored on its own. Let's take a look at the Gemara. 
Hagufakasha. This is an internal contradiction. Amarta Potter. You started by saying that when there are ox of a Khoshot of a Katan goes hours, you're exempt. Now, obviously, you know, you don't have to say that if they don't have an apotropis, because obviously they're exempt. They're exempt from everything. They're exempt when they themselves damage. It must mean that even if you've appointed an apotropis, as long as the animal is still a tom, you're not going to collect from it. You might collect once it becomes a muad, but not when it's a tom. You do not appoint an apotropis for a tom to enable you to collect from the body of the tom, meaning to collect from it as a tom. You can only, the apotropis will only allow you to collect as a muad. That's what's implied in the Mishnah, because the Mishnah only starts, you know, talking about you give ha'ada and you warn or whatever, you'll be able to start collecting once it's a muad. Okay, Ema Seifa, let's look at the end of the Mishnah. If it gored, based in based in assigns an apotropus and testifies in front of the apotropus. That doesn't spell out when you start collecting, even though it says you warn in front of them. So that makes it sound like maybe you do start collecting when it's still a Tom. Okay, so what's the story? Here's how you have to read it. If it has established itself as a gorer, Tosos points out that doesn't mean that it's done it three times, but it just means that you can see that this ox has a vicious nature and you know that you have to act to protect the interests of society. Then you put out an apotropis, and you make it up and you testify, and then when you warn three times in front of the apotropis, and now it's a um, okay, and then now when it goes, now that's a muad, now it'll pay out of pocket, not migufo. Okay, and that does sort of sound like it in the Mishnah. The Mishnah does sound like you're not going to start paying for this until you've testified and until it becomes a muad, not before. Now, Rashi and Tosa say the Gemara never spells out why you can't start paying when it's only a tom. Um, and the basic answer, you know, is, and they really struggle with different reasons why that might be. But the basic answer is, look, the Torah goes easy on a Tom. Either the whole thing is a knas and you really should be paying nothing. And therefore, you know, we, we, we'll go easy on the cheveshot of the katan and not make them pay if the Torah, you know, pay a knas if it's not a real liability. Or you could say it the other way. It is a liability, but because it's the first three times, the Torah, you know, you know, um, went easy on the person. So if the Torah went easy on the person and Neo we're dealing with cheveshot of we're going to go easy on them as well. So the basic point is half payment clearly shows it's not normal tashlumim, and therefore we're going to go easy on the cheirishot of the We don't do it when it's a tam, but we will start paying once it becomes a muad. So you appoint this shomer in order to help protect society, and there will start being payments once it becomes a muad. Okay, now the Gemara says, me'alias man, who pays for it when it actually, whose property does it come out from when it actually, you know, goes out and gores after three times? Rabbi Yochanan Amar Melias Yisomim. The orphans pay. Now, they didn't do anything wrong. Um, now, by the way, uh, um, you know, it's who, who is talking about orphans? We're talking about Chevashat of a Katan. But when we talk about Apitropis, Apitropis normally is in the context of orphans, people who inherit properly when they're minors. So, you know, so that's sort of how it's being framed. But it would be Yisomim, meaning minors that now have this ox. 
And that's the case. Okay, so yes, they pay. Now, why should they pay? They're minors. They don't have any liability. So we'll see about that in the Gemara. No, the Apitropos was the one who was negligent. So he's the one who pays. Umiyama Rabbi Yochanan Hachinan. Did Rabbi Yochanan really say that it's the minors or the orphans who pay? That when you have minors, you do not, um, you know, and people come and 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 uh, um, creditors come and want to collect from the estate from that, you know, that their father, whatever, left to them. That you uh, don't uh, allow any of the court cases to proceed until they become adults. The only exception that you make is is that if it's a non-Jew um, who has a loan out, you know, that, that, that and the father borrowed money and he's paying interest, then you go ahead and you deal with that because you don't want to keep on, you know, having to, having to, having the interest accrue, okay? But basically, you protect the orphans, you know, while they're still minors and you don't, pro- and you don't deal with any sort of claims against their estate. Um, you know, they'll have to deal with it once they become adults. Um Either that case you just mentioned of ribis of of interest, or if the widowed wife of their father, you know, she gets a right to be supported by the estate for her room and board until she until her ksuva is paid out. So that's a similar type of an example where they're incurring an ongoing loss paying for her room and board, you know, so better just do the lump sum payment of the ksuva and ultimately that will protect their property. But other than these cases where you're allowing them to pay to protect them from ongoing loss, you do not take anything from the orphans while they are still orphans. Um, so how could, so if Rabbi Yochanan said that, how could Rabbi Yochanan here say that it's going, you're going to pay from the property of the orphans? Um, so April, so the one says, fine, reverse it. Rabbi Yochanan, Rabbi Yochanan will be the one that says that the Apotropos pays. Rabbi Yochanan, it's the Yosomim's property that, that gets paid. So the Gemara says, I'm a Rava, because you had a problem that Rabbi Yochanan seemed to be in Consistent. In one case, he says you don't collect from orphans, and here he says you do collect from orphans. You're going to turn Reb Yosef Reb Chanina into an erring position. You're going to make him to be the one that says you collect from orphans. We've already established that you don't collect from orphans. So you moved Reb Yochanan away from that position, and then you put Reb Yosef Reb Chanina. So now he's holding this position, which you said is basically one that you know is is one that there's a consensus that orphans don't pay. So you can't do that, Reb Yosef Reb Chanina. Stick him with that position. Um, he's the judge and he gets to the heart the, the you know the depths of the din and therefore you know you, you know he would ne- never say you you make the orphans pay if the general rule is orphans don't pay okay but somebody's got to say it and what's the logic if that's the general rule so let's take a look fine don't reverse it. Rabbi Yochanan says the orphans pay, even though normally Rabbi Yochanan protects the property of the orphans while they're still minors. How is this case different? Umazik Shani. So, and it's different when, you know, they went out and their ox damaged something. It's not like some debt that they own. All right. So that's a different case. You know, there's a case where they, he will concede that they do pay. And the Gemara actually goes on. Let's keep on reading. Um, and now we're going to spell it out. Not just they hurt somebody so they have to pay for it, but no. Because if you say the Apitropis has to pay, 
top of Lamatelamikbat, Mimani Velo Avdi, he'll refuse to do it. Okay? The, now, the interesting thing is it does not seem that these apotropists would ever get any fee for their uh, efforts and for their labor. Um, and um, so therefore, if um, now what they would get is some status. Basin trusts them to oversee and protect the property of the orphans. Okay? So it says here, um, but, but you know, so they're not going to willing to take this position if they're going to have to be paying out of pocket. They'll do their best to not be negligent and so on. But if something happens, you know, it's going to be paid from the orphans. And since we need to do this, we need somebody to watch it, we'll have to make an exception to our rule and we'll have to allow it to be the payment to come from the orphans or we won't get anybody to watch it. Rabbi Yosef says, no, 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 you do pay from the apotropis. You start by paying from the apotropis. When the initial nezek happens, the ap- you know, you know, you don't, you still protect the orphans while they're still minors. And he goes to his bank account and he pays. How about the fact that that will be a disincentive for him to take this position godly and then and you and you go ahead and when the orphans become adults then they'll pay for it okay but they'll pay him back so everybody agrees that in order to get somebody to take this you know thankless job you can't you have to exempt him from personal liability the and therefore eventually the orphans are going to pay the debate is whether the orphans pay now which Rabbi Yochanan says even though normally he agrees you don't take anything from the orphans while they're minors or whether the apitropus pays now and he'll collect later when they become adults okay but that is at least um, um, you know the position here now Tosas points out that it sounds like from this reason even from this Gemara that we, that in order to get people to take this position we have to exempt them from an apitropus from any negligence uh, that goes against another Gemara that says an apitropus is responsible when he's negligent and Tosas makes a distinction between two types of apitropus he says an apitropus here the apitropus is doing a service for the community. Okay, he's not really being trusted to handle the property of the orphans. There's no real trust. He's just sort of like a, a policeman. He's there to make sure the ox doesn't gore. That is not a high status role. And to get him to take that role, you have to exempt him from payment. However, to put him in charge and to trust him enough to oversee, you know, the estate of the orphans, um, that is something that has a lot of status with it and he might reap benefits in other ways that other people will trust him. And therefore, in that type of a role, says Tosos, he is liable for negligence. Okay, so that's the Mishnah. The does not pay um, as a tam, um, the apotropist, but there is an apotropist, but exemption of payment for a tam, but there is an apotropist to protect the community. Um, you make him a muad. After he's a muad, there is payment. Eventually, that will come from the um, from the orphans, even though it's the apotropist's negligence, which is allowing it, you know, to happen. Okay, now the Gemara continues. This question of does the apotropis, when you make an apotropis for this goring ox, will it allow you to collect from the from the animal even as a tom? That even though we said that our Mishnah says no, that actually is a debate of Tanaya. An ox that the owners became cheresh, or they became shote, or they just abandoned their property and they went over to Medina Sayam and they didn't assign anybody to watch it and protect it. 
Okay, so Yehuda ben Nukusa Omer Sumchis, um, Amar Sumchis, so, so Yehuda ben Nukusa says in the name of Sumchis, Hareu betamuso, Adkia idubo bifnei habalim. It remains a tam until it is testified in front of the owners. That no, you assign an apitropis and you allow that it to become the muad through warning the apitropis. So that sounds like they're debating whether you assign an apitropis or not. Okay, but let's continue. Um, um, let's say the cheresh now got his got his hearing back and the shota now became better from his mental illness, and the minor became an adult, and the owners returned from overseas. So now in the name of Sumchas, he says, it returns to being a tam. Until it's warned in terms of the, you know, directly to the to the owners, the original owners who took it back. Okay, so this is the principle we saw in the Mishnah of Rishus Mishana, right? They took it back, it goes back to being a tam. But as the Gemara is going to say, so it sounds like they agree that there was an apitropis to make it into a muad. In order to say that it reverts to being a tam, you have to have agreed that there was a process that made it a muad. So, so it remains a muad. Okay, so the second debate is clear. There was an apitropis, it was made a muad, it, now they become, you know, responsible adults, it goes to them. Does it go back to being a tam or does it stay a muad? But what's the first debate? So let's take a look. When the, in the first case, you know, when you when Sumcha said it's it's in its it remains Tom, and they said no, you assign an apitropis. What's the debate? It's clear they both agree you assign an apitropis and make it a muad. So if the, if Sumcha is saying you do not have an apitropis and you don't make it a muad, since the end says that when they become uh, you know of well mind and adults, they take possession and it reverts to being a tam. You see that Sumchis agrees that there was a process to make it a muad, right? Because then, because because uh, only then he says, and now it will go back to being a tam. So if he agrees there's a process of making it a muad, what is he debating with the chachamim? Very good question. Elamai hareu bitamuso. What does Sumchis mean that it remains a tam? Hareu bitmimuso. It doesn't exactly mean it remains a tam. It means it remains complete. He says, I agree you will make it apitropis and you can become a muad and pay as a muad. And when they, if they get better or become an adult or whatever, it'll go back to being a tom. But, but in the process of becoming a muad, while it's still a tom, it remains a pure tom, meaning it is full and complete and you don't have to pay during that period of tom. Okay, uh, you do not take away from it. It's not going to pay from its body, and it's not like the laws of a tam. You do, although you have an apitropis to make it into a muad, the apitropis does not allow you to collect from the body of the tam and pay as a tam. Uh, you assign an apitropis, and that means here, although they don't say it, it's not clear, but you do make it pay from the body. Okay, so now we're having our mission that says, that is understood to be, you don't pay as a tam to be sumchis, and reading into the chachamim to say you do pay as a tam with this apitropis. Again, it's all very vague, none of this has been spelled out, neither in the mission or in the Sprite, but that's what we are saying. Okay, now, 
Migufa, um, what did they debate in the end? You could also say in our Mishnah, what's the debate when the minor becomes an adult and, you know, the cherish becomes hearing and so on, and it goes back into their possession. So what's that, the debate, whether it returns to it bigatam or not? So that's the debate. Whether changing, whether the changing of the possession of ownership makes it go back to its original status. Uh, that it does change its status and it goes back. It doesn't make a difference. And again, it's easy to understand. think of this as a question about whether the focus is on the owner or on the ox, but the Gemara does not exactly tie it into that debate. Okay, let's take a look at another um, debate. You have the ox of a cherish of a cotton that gourd. Rabbi Yaakov Mishalim Chatinezek. Rabbi Yaakov pays half damages. So this is very funny. The Gemara says, Rabbi Yaakov Mayavite. What did Rabbi Yaakov do wrong that he's paying half damages? Rabbi Yaakov pays half damages. Okay, we're going to get Rabbi Yaakov to pay. So Ella Ema Rabbi Yaakov Omer Mishalim Chatinezek. Okay, Rabbi Yaakov says you pay half damages, which is clearly what it meant, but it's pretty funny. Okay, so now you have an idea of paying half damages of an ox of cherish. So what's going on? So the Gemara says, What's the case? If it's a tam, obviously that you pay half. Everybody agrees you pay half. Now, the Chiddush could be, like we're saying, that even though it's there was an apitropis, and you'll pay half even though it's a tam. We saw that that was heavily debated. But Rashi tells us both say, then just say chayev. If all he's saying is that you have an ox of a cherishot of a cotton that gores as a tam, you're chayev because there's an apitropis, say chayev. By saying you pay chatzinezek suggests that it was possible to think that you would pay full, and he's saying you only pay chatzinezek. So let's take a look. So if it's a case of a tam and you're paying because of apitropis, what's the chiddush of chatzinezek? Just say chayev. So ibatam khitam, of course, that's what you pay for a tam is chatzinezek. So just say chayev. The ibamuad, if it's a case of a muad, shmira, if it was watched, you shouldn't have to pay at all. And if it wasn't watched properly, you should have to pay full. So what's the case of paying half? Okay, so where you might have thought you paid full. That's what it's reading into the words, Mishali Mechatsi Nezek. So, Amar Rava says, Rava, Le'olam b'muad, it is a muad. You did a grade B shmira and not a grade A shmira. Okay. Rabbi Yaakov Savarlak, Rabbi Yehuda, Damaritzad Tamus bin Koma Omedes. He holds like Rabbi Yehuda that says an ox, even after it's become a muad, is really seen of as half muad and half tam. Um, and we're not done. Vesavalak Reb Yehuda and holds like Reb Yehuda, Damar Muad Sagile Bishmir Pchusa, that a Muad B level Shmira is good. Only a Tom needs A level Shmira. Okay? So let's just pause there for a moment. That's a lot of things. All right? So. There's a whole debate later what level of Shmira is needed to be exempt for the goring of an ox, and is it the same for a Tom and a Muad? Now, you would think that because a Tom, you pay half, there's less liability, you would lead, you know, equal or less Shmira to be exempt for a Tom, and that is obviously a very logical position, um, but Rabbi Yehuda takes the counterintuitive position, and Rabbi Yehuda says, 
um, that a muad B-level shmir is enough, as long as you're not negligent, even though the axe has gored three times, as long as you're not grossly negligent, you're exempt, okay? But for a tam, you have to do A-level shmir to be exempt. Very bizarre. One way to understand it is, well, look, you were never, by a tam, you were never negligent at all, and the Torah is making you pay. So the Torah is making you pay not because of any fault of your own. So in order to be exempt, you need to do excellent shmir and it's seen as an act of God, then it's seen as completely separate from you. But whatever the case might be, he has this counterintuitive position that you need A-level shmira to be exempt from a tam, but only B-level shmira to be exempt from paying for a muad. Now, you also hold, like the position of Rebbe, uh, 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 you know, that a, um, uh, that um, um, that um, that an animal that becomes a muad is a half tom, half muad. So you have this animal that's been worn three times, half tom, half muad, and you did a B-level shmira. The B-level shmira means, oh, so for the muad of it, you've did, done a sufficient shmira and you're exempt. But for the tom of it, you have not done a sufficient shmira because that needs A-level and you only did B-level, and therefore you're going to remain chayev for the tom. So that's why he says you're chayev, but he says chatzinezek. You might think you're chayev full. No, because I see this as a hybrid animal, and because you did a, a B-level shmira, you're only going to be chayev for the half that's a tom. Okay? And, of course, now we have to be, uh, say, the other chiddish, that you pay for a tom, even though it's a cheri shot of a katan. Um... So that's why he says you pay chatzinezek. He could just have said it's a tam and you pay chatzinezek because, you know, but again, Rashi tells us say the Gemara assumes because he didn't just say chai when he said chatzinezek, it meant you would have thought you pay full, but you're only paying half. Why? It's a muad, but it's a hybrid muad tam. That's what Reb Yehuda thinks that a muad is, and B-level shmirah gets you off from the muad, but you're still paying for the tom part, and that's why you pay chatzinezek. Okay, we will stop here.